Hi guys, my name is Dr Vivek Murphy and I'm an internal medicine trainee in the West Midlands. Welcome back to another podcast. This week, you're the junior doctor on the acute medical take. It's about six o'clock in the morning and it's been a long week. The next referral from A&E says this. 40-year-old man, epilepsy diagnosed as a child. Multiple seizures in the last few days. Recent DNV. Hopefully this will be a nice straightforward one before you go to morning handover and then go home. Or will it be? Hmm. You go to your patient's room in A&E and you introduce yourself. He's sat up in bed, alert and chatty, and this is what you find out. He tells you he's had three seizures in the last 48 hours. The day before yesterday, he had one witnessed by his mum, and she told him it was very similar to the generalised tonic-clonic seizures, which were normal for him in the past. He was alone in the house yesterday and blacked out twice, so he assumes he's had two more, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, and he called the ambulance out later that night. He tells you that one week ago, after a dodgy takeaway, he developed severe and persistent diarrhoea and vomiting, which lasted for about four days. He wasn't keep, able to keep any food or drink down at all, including his medication. Right now, though, he feels fine. No headache, no visual disturbance, and no weakness or odd sensation in the limb. He doesn't think he suffered any injuries either. He's established on sodium valproate and levetiracetam, which is commonly known as Keppra, and hasn't had a seizure for five years. He reports he's never missed a tablet in that time. He attends his neurology clinic regularly, every six months. He normally lives by himself in a flat and works in a bookshop. He doesn't smoke and doesn't drink unless it's Christmas. On systems review, you find out that although the diarrhoea and vomiting settled four days ago, he's been feeling very tired and lethargic since then. He hasn't felt like eating or drinking much at all. When you ask about urinary symptoms, he realises that he hasn't passed urine for almost 24 hours. He didn't have any dysuria though the last time he passed urine, and he doesn't have any abdominal pain either. His regular medications are just sodium valproate and Keppra, and he hasn't taken any over-the-counter meds for a long time. So now to your examination. He's still sat up in bed, alert and chatty, and you look at his observations. Heart rate 105, blood pressure 100 over 50, oxygen saturations 97% on air, respiratory rate 16, and no fevers. His pulse is regular, if slightly fast. His central capillary refill time is 5 seconds. His skin turgor is reduced and lips and tongue are dry. You can't see a JVP. His calves are soft, with no pitting edema. He's breathing away comfortably. You listen to his chest and there's good air entry on both sides with no crackles. His heart sounds normal. His abdomen is soft and non-tender. There's no evidence of any masses there. You examine his cranial nerves and then the peripheral nervous system, both upper and lower limb and you find no focal neurological deficit. At this stage, you thank him, make him comfortable, and leave the room to check his blood results. He's had a panel of blood sent to the lab, but no blood gas done. You find no abnormality in his full blood count, his LFTs, clotting, or CRP, but his use and ease are as follows. Sodium, 137, potassium, 4.8, urea, 24, and creatinine, 324. You might like to pause the audio here and think for yourself, what are the problems and what would you do next? What further tests would you do or organise and what treatments would you give? So, there are two issues here. One issue is the seizures and the second issue is his acute kidney injury. So with the first thing, the seizures, I don't want to dwell too much on this because the main theme of the podcast is AKI. 
But basically, his increased seizure frequency is likely because he's missed his medications. His neurological examination is normal now, so there's unlikely to be any new structural intracranial abnormality, but you should always consider that possibility in someone with new or worsening seizures. You'd probably want to discuss his case with the neurology registrar for further advice. As for starting his normal medications, hold that thought because we're going to discuss it later. The second and main issue is his AKI. From my history and examination, I thought the cause was pre-renal, secondary to hypovolemia caused by a gastroenteritis. I'll tell you my next steps and then we'll revise the topic of AKI afterwards. First, I checked his old blood tests to see his baseline creatinine. This was 90. His creatinine right now was 324. So this is an increase of 3.6 times. This puts him in AKI stage 3. Going back to my patient, I inserted a cannula and took some blood for a venous blood gas. He hadn't had any fluids yet since arriving in the hospital, so I prescribed one litre of Hartman's for the next hour and another litre over four hours after that, and I asked the nurse if she could give these straight away. My rationale was that he was slightly tachycardic and hypotensive, with signs of dehydration on examination, so he was clearly hypovolemic. He had no signs of fluid overload and no history of heart failure, so I was unlikely to push him into pulmonary edema at this stage. So I felt giving plenty of fluids up front was necessary and safe. The blood gas result came back. If you're on Instagram, why not look at it now? Pause the audio and have a go at interpreting it. So, his pH is 7.25 with a PCO2 of 4.0 and a bicarbonate of 19. So all of this together indicates a metabolic acidosis. But clinically, the sig significant result to look for here is the potassium. And here it's within the normal range, reassuringly, at 4.9. The next thing I did was to catheterize my patient. I explained to him that this was to monitor his urine output closely. When the catheter was in, I noted the residual volume of urine, which is about 100 mils, and I documented that. I took a sample of urine and asked the HCA to dip it, and then asked him to send it for culture regardless of what came back. It came back negative, no nitrates or leukocytes, and no blood or protein either. A urine dip is really important, not just for investigating infection, but also you can find evidence of intrinsic renal diseases by looking at blood and protein. Obviously, if you have no evidence of UTI, you shouldn't start antibiotics for one, but getting a culture done can help later on in the patient's admission, especially if the underlying diagnosis is hard to figure out. Also remember at this point, it's so important to clearly document the result of your dip and the residual volume in the bladder. It's the kind of thing which gets lost otherwise, and the renal and urology teams always want to know it. So now we had the catheter in, I asked the nurse to keep a strict input and output chart, especially important for the next four to six hours. I went back to the computer and requested a CK, creatinine kinase level, to add to his blood tests, and a renal tract ultrasound scan, to be done urgently, but not necessarily right now as an emergency. I checked to see if he'd ever had an echocardiogram, but he hadn't. There was no reason to, I guess. Then to the drug chart. I knew his regular medications, Keppra and sodium valproate, but I wanted to make sure they were okay to give an AKI. Some drugs we all know to hold an AKI, for example, non-steroidals like ibuprofen or ACE inhibitors like Ramipril. But if you're unfamiliar with any of a patient's medications, don't be afraid to look it up or ask somebody. Often the BNF gives you all the information you need, but sometimes it's a bit vague. 
If that's the case, you can look it up in the Renal Drug Handbook, which is an amazing resource. Or you can check with a pharmacist or a more experienced colleague. If you look these drugs up, you'll find that keprodosis should be reduced in renal impairment, but sodium valproate doesn't need adjusting. As part of my clerking, I also had to do a VTE risk assessment, and I prescribed the prophylactic low molecular weight heparin, but remember that you have to prescribe a dose adjusted for renal impairment. And I put bloods on the system for the for lobotomists to do the next day. Remember, always be kind to tomorrow's team if you can, and you can predict that this patient will definitely need bloods tomorrow to monitor the user needs. After I'd done these initial measures, my consultant was about ready for the post-take round. But if this had been a long way off, then probably you should discuss the case sooner with a senior, so they are aware of the patient and can go through your management plan. So now we've talked about the case, let's just revise the topic of AKI a bit and understand some of the reasoning behind what we've done with our patient. AKI, or acute kidney injury, is a sudden decrease in kidney function, which can range from a mild deterioration all the way up to renal failure. It has significant morbidity and mortality, but it's also very common and often treatable, so it's really important to have some awareness of it. There are three key questions when it comes to AKI. One, how severe is it? Two, what's the cause? And three, do they need dialysis? So step one, how severe is this AKI? This is going to affect how urgently you act and the treatment plan which you put in place. It's common sense, but of course the more severe it is, the higher the chance of developing dangerous complications. You may have come across some staging classifications for AKI, which grade them according to urine output or rise in serum creatinine. It looks kind of complicated on the page, whichever one you look at. My practical tip would be to just remember the creatinine criteria and go through it backwards in your head. You'll never forget. Stage 3 is a 3 times increase from baseline. Stage 2 is a 2 times increase from baseline. And stage 1 is a 1.5 times increase from baseline. Job done. Question 2. What is the cause of this AKI? This is crucial because there's such a range of pathological processes with very different final treatments. It's really important to consider all the possible causes and rule them out for your patient. You can't just make assumptions based on your initial history and exam, no matter how obvious the diagnosis might seem. And this is especially true for stage 3 AKIs, which have such a high risk of complications that you really want to be investigating as thoroughly as you can. To help remember the causes, there's a simple and well-known classification for them which I'm sure you've heard, pre-renal, intrinsic renal, and post-renal. The most common out of those three is pre-renal. Pre-renal causes happen because of a lack of perfusion to the kidneys, which is most often because of systemic intravascular depletion, like in sepsis or hypovolemia of any other cause. There are rarer causes, of course. Another one, for example, is renal artery stenosis, but these wouldn't be your first thought. Intrinsic renal causes are actually the least common, these are things like glomerulonephritis, vasculitis, interstitial disorders. Drugs which are toxic to the kidneys tend to affect its tissues directly, the tubules, glomeruli and interstitium. So they also tend to be classified here under intrinsic renal causes. Post-renal causes are caused by obstruction of the urinary tract. Anything which blocks that tract can cause post-renal AKI anywhere along the line, from renal pelvis, ureters, bladder to urethra. You can get blockages within the lumen, like stones and clots, blockages arising from the tract wall, like tumours and strictures, and blockages caused by external compression of the tract, for example, 
pelvic cancer. You can easily see from that list how your initial management will depend on the likely cause. However, there are some basic principles to the approach which you can apply to any scenario. These include a careful assessment of your patient's volume status, ensuring good monitoring of their fluid balance, and a thorough review of their medication, stopping or adjusting nephrotoxic drugs wherever possible. The third and final key question is, does my patient need dialysis? The most significant immediate complications of AKI, which you have to be aware of, are hyperkalemia, pulmonary edema, acidemia, and uremia. They can all have life-threatening consequences. Hyperkalemia can lead to arrhythmias, pulmonary edema can cause respiratory failure, uremia can cause encephalopathy or pericarditis, and severe metabolic acidosis leads to, well, severe general badness. If you're unable to treat these complications successfully, that's when you need dialysis. So for example, a patient has a potassium of 7, treat it immediately with insulin and dextrose, and calcium gluconate if necessary. If that potassium level comes down to a safe level, then happy days. But if it's just not shifting, well that's the time to be getting dialysis sorted. To do that, you'll need to speak to either the renal team or intensive care, depending on what the system is in your hospital and how sick your patient is. So that's your three basic steps to thinking about AKI. How severe is it? What's the cause? And do we need dialysis? So that concludes this podcast on acute kidney injury. We discussed a case that you might commonly see on the acute medical take, and we had a short introduction to this hugely important topic. I hope that you found it interesting, and I hope you'll be inspired to find out more about the subject. If you've got any comments or suggestions, then please send us your email addresses so we can hear your feedback. I'd like to thank the guys for inviting me on to the podcast, and I'd like to thank you all for listening.